Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. We would sit here and chat and catch up all day because I have one of the greatest green room guests and colleagues and friends that I've ever encountered uh, at CNN, none other than Carl Bernstein, who is here, who comes with a wealth of knowledge and a new book out in the streets today and a number eight on the New York Times bestsellers list only going up from here. Carl, welcome to the show. How are you doing, man? Well, it's great to be with you in a different medium. I'm so used to being <laughs> with you in the, in the CNN studio. This should be fun. You know, um, my show is is decently unique in the way that we started. So each one of our shows, we start by having our guests walk us through the arc of their careers. And you're what I call a journalist journalist. You've been investigating and writing about Washington for decades now. What initially got you into journalism? And after all these years, as we were just talking about, what keeps you engaged? Because you've long reached icon status in journalism, who cover uh, national politics journalism. So what keeps you going and in the game? Well, that's what this book that I'll hold up, Chasing History, A Kid in the Newsroom, is all about, even up to what keeps me in the game. Though the book is, uh, is really about my life from age 16 to 21, at a great newspaper, not the Washington Post, the Washington Star, the afternoon paper in my native city. I'm a second generation native Washingtonian, the capital of the United States, which I should say right out here was a Jim Crow town when I grew up in it. And so my five years at the Washington Star bracket the Civil War by 100 years exactly afterwards. And there's a good deal, as you know, from reading this book in about civil rights, because I got to cover the civil rights revolution, starting, believe it or not, when I was 16 years old. And so what the book is, it's not the old man looking back. It's written in the voice and point of view of this kid who uh, left that paper in 1965. But, but nothing in the book takes place after 1965. It really, there's an epilogue that gives you a little something that, you know, says he went to the Washington Post or whatever. But everything I know, I think both almost as a man, as a person, and certainly in terms of reporting and journalism, almost everything I learned in this great newsroom of this great afternoon newspaper, which is significant, the fact that it's an afternoon newspaper, starting when I was a teenager, I got the best seat in the country. And so what you have in this book, is what you're asking about, the story of, well, what's the beginning? How did you get to where you went eventually? Because I had this foundation, because I had mentors who are described in this book, the most colorful, amazing mentors you, you can imagine. And in fact, very early, two great mentors, Sidney Epstein, city editor of the Washington Post, who gave me every opportunity, starting in the first weeks when I was there, said, hey, kid, go out and cover the inauguration of John Kennedy. Go out on the street, watch the crowds. Don't get fancy. Don't, don't try to, to give us anything of, of your own writing. Just dictate to a rewrite man what you're seeing in the crowds, the parade. Imagine that. I've been there just a few, you know, a couple months, and I got to do that. So he's the one great mentor, and I'm blessed. I had two greatest editors you could probably ever have. Sid Epstein at the Star and Ben Bradley at the Washington Post, where I went to work 12 years after I had gone to work at the Star. But let me say one, one more thing about 
the other mentor. The other mentor there was a woman named Mary Lou Werner. And the year I went to work there, she had won the Pulitzer Prize for her coverage of massive resistance to desegregation in Virginia. And, and so it gives you an idea of, of what this world was that I was covering from the first, uh, from age 16. And I, and I went to work there at age 16. I had one foot in the classroom, one foot in the juvenile court, one foot in the pool hall. And so, and, and, uh, and the foot in the classroom was really about two inches, so it didn't count as a foot. And, uh, but I was lucky enough to get this greatest seat in the country and at age 16. And yeah, I took advantage of it. And everything that, that has followed in my life comes from that. And from this formative period in my life, those five years are also formative in this country through the civil rights revolution, through what happened in Vietnam, the Kennedy era, the Lyndon Johnson era, et cetera, et cetera. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You know, I, I would sit here and talk to you about a kind of the liter literary mechanics of how you were able to write this memoir in that person during that time period, because the mechanics that you use were so interesting. But instead, instead of boring everybody to death with me trying to learn how to write better, I want to just delve in a little bit more into Chasing History. Why, after the story career you've had, did you decide to write this book at this time about this period of your life? Um, I actually wanted to for a long time. And there, there's a chapter in the book that actually I drafted something in 1990 and then I just put it in a drawer. But I've always known, look, I've had a great life and, and God knows what I've been able to do in, in my field. I've been so lucky and I had the greatest people to work with and the greatest publisher and Catherine Graham at the Washington Post, this great editor, Ben Bradley. But the most joyous time of my life, in many regards, are the five years of my apprenticeship. And, and these people who I worked with, these great characters, these great storytellers, these great writers, I learned everything. You know, what I know about the world, I really learned in this apprenticeship. And it, it's pretty 
unimaginable to be able to do today what I was able to do in those five years. You know, we, we and then when I went to the star, this country was still, still, it was in the middle of, you know, the post-war era. And we had the greatest meritocracy in the history of the earth. So I could be this kid that was about to go off to juvenile wherever, uh, hall or whatever you want to call it. And I got my foot in the door in this place and I got to do everything. I had been there actually a week and a half. And the head copy boy, I started as a copy boy, and you know, lowest rung on the ladder, running errands in the newsroom. And the head copy boy said to me, Bernstein, go to Burning Tree Country Club. President Eisenhower is there. It was four weeks before the election between Nixon and Kennedy in 1960. President Eisenhower is playing golf out there at Burning Tree. And we've got a photographer there. Go out there and take the photographer's film from him, bring it back to the office so we can get the pictures in the paper. I go out to Burning Tree Country Club. All I have is this Evening Star identification card. I flash it to the head caddy. That's enough. He takes me out to the pine green. And 12 feet away from me is the President of the United States sinking putts on the practice putting green. And, and I had a notebook with me. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to play it being a reporter here. I could see those brown spots on Ike's hands. And uh, he was the oldest president, first president of the United States I ever had seen. And uh, I wrote down in a notebook about the brown spots on his hand. And then I, I went to the photographer, got his film, and went back to the office. But what stuck me was the ability to write down in that notebook. And if I was going to write that story, I would write about the brown spots on Ike's hands. Oh, wow. I mean, that's... <laughs> That's legendary in itself. I'm just trying to, all I can do is paint the picture in my head. You know, I ask every author this question and I'm always fascinated by the response. I learned so much about you in reading this book, but how, if at all, did this book change you? It changed me in realizing how would I have learned at this newspaper and the values of my parents, which I'll talk about in a minute, that there is a straight line in this book to all the president's men, even though there's not a word in here about Watergate, that what is good reporting? It's the best obtainable version of the truth, to use a phrase Woodward and I have used for 50 years now. It's By the way, the fact, the fact that there was not a mention of Watergate is something that stood out to me. Well, there's not. And yet, when you read this book, and even much more than I realized when I was writing it, but, but as I would get to a paragraph here and there, and particularly about the best obtainable version of the truth, which we can talk about, because that's what reporting is all about, I would see, oh, here's a straight line to what we did in Watergate. Here's a straight line to the way we have covered Donald Trump, both Woodward and myself, for that matter, that, that all of this learning here had just took me through all these years in journalism, in reporting. I say a word about my parents. My parents were, were radicals, left-wing people, and very much at the forefront of efforts to desegregate Washington, D.C. when I was a kid. I went with them to the first sit-ins in Washington, D.C. in the mid-1950s to integrate the restaurants downtown. You can imagine the capital of the United States. I went to segregated public schools 
in the capital of the United States to a Brown versus Board of Education. And, and downtown, these sit-ins we had, Black people could stand at the lunch counter, take things out. They couldn't sit at the lunch counter. There was not a restaurant downtown with tables that would serve Black people except for the government cafeterias until the early 1950s. And so my parents had had been very active in trying to desegregate uh, Washington, D.C. And so when it came, and I, and I always thought, says in here, what I really wanted to do when I grew up at the time I was at the Star was be the city editor of the Washington Star, like my mentor, Sid Epstein, the great character in this book, with his elegant shirts from yeah. Thomas sharp, Lewis sharp, Salt. Sharp guy, sharp yeah. guy. And, and so, and yet, what I wanted to do as a reporter was to cover civil rights. And so, amazingly enough, starting at the age of 16, I got assigned to things that were covering civil rights. And the last thing that I covered at the Washington Star, practically, and you've read it in here, was the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Oh, my goodness. And here we are again. Don't worry. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Amazingly, though, this is what I mean about the resonance, resonance to today. The last thing I relate, practically, that I covered at the Star, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which finally did away with the poll tax, finally did away with all these impediments to black people voting in this country. And where are we today? And also passed because it had Republican support, had support of Everett McKinley Dirksen, the Republican leader of the Senate, not the Mitch McConnell of the Senate. And last week, what do we have in this country? The inability to keep intact the Voting Rights Act of 1965, a political part whose absolute bottom line, its most basic premise, the Republican Party of today, is to deny democratic elections in our country through suppressing the right to vote. Let me ask you this question. One of my favorite questions to ask political journalists, and I I will say this, I've had, you know, the Abby Phillips and Maggie Habermans and Jonathan Martins of the world. Um, but none quite of your uh, prestige, I will say, and they, they understand that. Uh, but uh, I want you to assess the current state of political journalism. We've seen Washington bureaus of local papers cut and a lot of news nationalized by cable news, often covering more horse race elements. How have you seen national political reporting evolve? And do you think we need to, quote, fix national political reporting? Well, I think we need to do some fixing of reporting generally, and I'll get to that in a minute. But if we're talking about, for instance, I would say that the reporting on the Trump presidency by the greatest number of news organizations uh, covering the White House, as well as by people writing books, reporters writing books about Trump and about the Trump White House, I think it's the greatest reporting on a presidency in my lifetime that I've ever seen. Uh, especially by this, you know, on, on Watergate, Woodward and I, for a good number of months, were kind of by ourselves out there on a limb. And, and we were really happy when the New York Times and others started to do the reporting on Watergate. But in the Trump presidency, 10, 12 news organizations, great reporting on Trump from beginning to end, and great books as well. So what would that reporting mean? Is it almost everything we know? about the first seditious president in the history of the United States. I mean, even Jefferson Davis, the, uh, the 
seditious president uh, of, of the you know of, of the Confederacy was a member of Congress. There's never been a seditious president of the United States who advocated and encouraged an insurrection against the government of the United States, who staged a coup. Where do we know what we know about this president and his presidency? We know it from those national reporters that you're talking about. So I think that, that uh, we have huge problems in, in reporting today. And the biggest one, and go come back to this phrase, the best obtainable version of the truth is what we're going to been calling it for 50 years. It's the 50th anniversary of Watergate this year. Uh, but also at the star, we called it what I was taught was uh, the complexity of the truth, which meant you got out of the office. It's what we did in Watergate. Here's this straight line from chasing history to all the president's men without having a word about Watergate or all the president's men in the book. We knocked on doors. We're perseverant. We used common sense and saw people not at their offices where to be under pressure from their bosses. We went and visited them at night in their homes. We saw source after source after source. You see it in Chasing History that we were required at the Washington Star to get our stories from more than one source. We had to keep going. But the real thing that's happening in so many newsrooms today since the internet is young reporters especially going on Google, looking things up, using Wikipedia, and not using them as the great tools that they are for to make things quicker and get background information, but instead of going out of the office and going, making sources, doing the footwork, doing the legwork, that's what the best obtainable version of the truth is. And also, whatever your preconceived notion of a story might be, and we all have when we start on a story, my preconceived notion when I started on the Watergate story, first day or two was this would probably go to the CIA, not to the Nixon White House. But your preconceived notion of a story is never, almost never the same as the story turns out to be. You're not going to learn that from Google. You're not going to learn that from Wikipedia. You learn it by talking to sources by respecting them, even those who you think may be nefarious. You listen to their stories. Very often, nefarious people will tell you what is their truth. <laughs> uh, and then you go to the other, other people. That, that, that sounds like something that needs to go on Rudy Giuliani's tombstone. Nefarious well, people will even tell you their truth. Well, well, they might. But then you go to the people that were screwed by Giuliani and you get the other part of the story. So you're constantly in search by going to source after source of what the real complexity of the truth is. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. 
The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son? They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. You know, one of the things that I picked up as a major theme, and I don't know if, and I think it was, you know, we, we when we write books, and I say we because I just happen to be an author now too. You got try a bestseller to, is number four. I know, I know. It's Where? my. How many? Let me ask you this: How many New York Times bestsellers do you have now, Carl? I think five, maybe six. <laughs> five, maybe six. This is my second one. I gotta, I gotta catch up on you. I two before 40 is not bad, but I got to I got to get some more. You're doing just fine. <laughs> so one of the themes that I picked up in, in chasing history and you I think you kind of meet the moment with this Actually, theme. I interrupt you. I had one book that didn't sell. So go ahead. And it was it was it was a real disappointment to me, actually. It was, it was probably one of your favorite. We'll talk about that in a second. But talk of you. You talked a lot about the importance of local journalism. And it's weird because. You were a local journalist in the Capitol, so you got a chance to cover. It was a real interesting juxtaposition. But what, if anything, can be done to bring back the state and local political beats where so much of what directly affects our lives happens? It's a huge problem. It's, it's one of the biggest problems we have in journalism because in this country, up until uh, probably the 21st century, we had great and good newspapers in almost every city and town uh, in America. And those newspapers in their coverage held together through being a communal experience, the social fabric of these cities and towns and and states even. And, And the absence of them has been a terrible, terrible loss to the country, to the culture of our country, to the lives of our cities and towns. And there's a myth that it's the internet that really did this because it had started before then in the 80s and the 90s when, and let me tell you, profits of newspapers, including and especially in these small towns uh, and communities, was 19% up through the end of the 20th century. That's a huge return. How did that happen? Why were they still making so much money? Because chains like Gannett, Knight Ritter, others, came into towns and cities and bought up these local newspapers from local ownership. They bought these newspapers and immediately started to strip them of their reporters and got the reporting staffs down to damn near nothing. They used these papers to get raise advertising revenue, raise the rate of return, so it was 18 and 19 percent through the end of the 20th century at the expense of reporting. So you ended up with these papers being a shell of themselves without the reporting that had been the basis of a civic compact in many regards in a town or a city where you knew about what was going on on the other side of town, not just your your side, where you knew what was going on at the local zoning commission. You knew what was going on in the state legislature. You knew about the planning commission. You knew about the school system. That started to go before the internet, when these chains came in, then they would buy the second newspaper in the town and shut it down. 
or come into a joint operating agreement with the second newspaper if it was a two newspaper town. So by the time the, the internet came along and started to be the dominant means of transmission, et cetera, et cetera, of news, and so that the circulation base of these newspapers started to go under, you already had the absence of a great news culture in our cities and towns because these rapacious newspaper chains had come in. And then you, you just had the death knell with, with the internet. Now, we still have maybe a quarter to half as many local newspapers, but they too are shadows of their former selves in most cases because of the stripping of the editorial uh, repertorial functions in, a, in, in favor of big rates of return in advertising without doing the hard work of the reporting. Just a couple more questions before I let you go, because I know you are a very busy man. What do you want readers to take from this project of Chasing History? I learned so much just about the fundamental tenets, and not only that, but the characters in the story, you brought them to life. But what do you want readers to take from this project, and how can people find your book? Well, and go to the latter first. Uh, people can find the book in bookstores everywhere, everywhere. All, all, everywhere. Over, all over America. Uh, they can get it on electronically, uh, on you know, for a Kindle, for their for their laptops, for their iPads, whatever device you want to. You can download the book, and uh, obviously, uh, there are huge outfits like Amazon, etc. There are great independent booksellers all over the country. There's Amazon, there's Barnes and Noble. So you can get the book pretty much anywhere, and, and I hope people will because it's the reason I wrote. Which, which is to show the ability of this kid to get the greatest seat in the country at age 16 and then participate in what's going on in the city. And also, yes, I went to Kennedy's press conferences, all, almost all of them. Yes, I covered his inauguration. Yes, I covered civil rights. But also, I got to know, you talk about small town out, Newspapers. I got to know the streets and alleys of my native city and the people who lived in them. Reporting newspapers, reporting journalism is about human beings. This is a story of people. It's not a story about institutions. It's not about the Congress of the United States. It's about the characters, perhaps, in the Congress. It's not about the presidency as much as it's about the president or the presidents. And and but really. The presidents are just a, a, a small part of the book. Yes, I got to see this stuff. And by the time of Watergate, I knew something about presidents and the presidents. But really, I knew about my town. I got to see, there's stories in here about me going to After Hours Club at the age of 17. Uh, I knew the After Hours Clubs. A great reporter at the Washington Stars took me with him one night. We had just come back from a four alarm fire. And he said, Come on, kid, I'm going to take you somewhere. And he knocks on the door, and there's a little peephole on the door. And uh, he says, stand in front of the peephole. And then the door opened. Uh, and I, I suddenly found myself in an after-hours club with about 80, 100 people in it. Uh, food on the tables, big bottles of booze on the table, uh, grits and gravy. <laughs> and... Uh, and uh, and integrated, integrated 
after hours club, I should I should add. Uh, and and I you know I got to know it pretty well. And in fact, the man who let us in at the door uh, also worked the daytime at the Supreme Court of the United States uh, as a porter there. <laughs> so that's the kind of, this book is about the so-called high and the so-called low. And yet what you learn is, no, that they're people and that, that you're reporting on the lives of people, tragedy, triumph, the human experience. Yeah, and the, full, the fullness of the human experience. Absolutely. And, and also the other thing that goes from here, Woodward and I could never have done the reporting we did on Watergate without respecting the people we were covering. All of our sources, all of them, first of all, they were anonymous sources, which people are always complaining about. 200 stories in the first year of Watergate and all through both years of Watergate, we didn't name a single source. But more than that, virtually every source we had was a Republican. Almost all of them were supporters of Richard Nixon originally. We respected them. We treated them as if we wanted to hear what they had to tell us. We didn't tell them what we wanted to hear. So that's the great lesson. It's the connection to today. It's the connection to reporting on the Trump presidency. Look at Bob's book. Books, plural, on, on Trump. Look, you know, I, you know, I was lucky enough at CNN to be covering, you know, after all these years, another presidency, the Trump presidency in all its horror. Well, look, Carl, I love you. I will see you in the green room soon when, Amar, when, when Omicron allows us to be back together. But I want everybody to go out and get Chasing History, another New York Times bestseller from somebody I can call my good friend, Carl Bernstein. It's good to have you on the show, my brother. Good to be with you. Much love to you. Thank you. Be blessed.